Nate Randall, thanks for being on the show. Of course. My man. brother. Always good to, good see, to see you. Thanks for the invite. So live life by design. That's the topic of what we want to focus on. You have a really big, robust resume in my eyes. Like you've worked at some amazing companies. Maybe start us off. So from my memory, Callaway's um, company one, but did you have a, a company before Callaway, before Nike? How, how did it work? Yeah. Tell us I'll, a little bit about that. I'll share that. that briefly. I sold printers and scanners. Oh, did you? For Hewlett Packard. Okay. So I did that for a couple of years. That's where I got into golf. I started playing a lot of golf because I could sell more printers and scanners on the course than in a conference room. I thought I was going to go to law school, so I mm. took the LSAT. And then driving home from that printer scanner sales job one day, I thought, I don't, I don't want to go to law school. I've been married a couple. How, how long after you took the LSAT did you make that decision? A month. A month Maybe post a month LSAT. Did so you do I, well in the LSAT? Average. I mean, good. You could have gotten good. it. I, I started applying, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want to do it. And I came home and told my wife, married, you know, six months. Mm. And she said, well, okay, if you're not going to do law school, then what are you going to do? And I said, well, I love golf. I love sports. So I started applying to Titleist, TaylorMade, Callaway. I lucked out and got a gig at Callaway. So Callaway was my first major corporate gig. Yeah. Cool. And what were you doing at Callaway? Started out, I was, the, I was training the sales reps on Callaway product. Oh, wow. So if you were the Callaway sales rep for Arizona or Southern California, you'd come into Callaway headquarters. I would take you through all the features and benefits from driver down through putters. You'd get all the operations and systems training, and then we'd take you out to your territory and start to sell the to golf courses. Did you, did you love it? Was it fun? Incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. And then after Cal, so did you golf a lot at Callaway? Was that part of the job? Just taking people to course, entertaining folks. So it was like dream job then newly married baby girl. Where were you? Where were you located? Uh, Callaway was in Carlsbad. Okay. I lived in, um, the inland empire about an hour away. Wow. But yeah. We played not every day, but close to every day. That's awesome. Yeah, it was good. Okay. So then post Callaway, you go to Nike, go to Nike. Okay. And Nike then, golf. Okay. So Nike golf. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Okay. So, so walk us through the Nike experience. Yeah. So I was in the golf business total for over 10 years. When I left Callaway golf, I went to Nike. When I got there shortly after tiger's life fell apart. So I was there when he hit the fire hydrant, his wife put the iron through the back window, everything came out and we had to manage through the downturn of tiger. And then eventually brought him back and he started winning again. But that was the, one of the craziest stretches of my career. So how involved were you in that whole, like I was in a situation you were like yeah. thick in it. So yeah, I guess, tell us what, what lessons did you learn? Like what, what were some of the pivots that you had to make and what are some of the takeaways that you can now turn back to for what you do today? So a lot of what I learned and experienced through that has helped me in this current CEO gig at, at Gab. So when, when everything happened with Tiger, we had to decide, well, what are we going to do with him? He wasn't only the biggest thing in golf. He was one of the biggest things at Nike at the time. He's one of the top two or three athletes. It was Serena Williams, Tiger, and, um, LeBron. Those were the three biggest athletes at Nike at the time. 
So when that happened, it didn't just impact Nike golf. It impacted Nike. Phil Knight got involved. And as he counseled us on what we should do with him and what we shouldn't do, the direction that I loved and learned a lot from is he said, you should go talk to basketball and learn what they did with Kobe. And we don't need to rehash Kobe, but we all know that he went through a tough sure. stretch. And what Nike basketball did is they said, let's take Kobe out of the U S basketball market and let's put him into China. Hmm. Let's have him tour China. Let's establish his name wow. over there. 18 to 24 months. And then when things have settled, we'll bring him back. And when Kobe came back from China, he wasn't living there, but he went over four or five times. When Kobe came back, he was an icon again. Hmm. And we all know how that ended tragically, unfortunately, but there's murals all over the world now with Kobe. So we learned from them. You can't just act like you don't still have Tiger. He's part of the portfolio but you got to move him somewhere where there's less pressure on his current life. Hmm. So we set up a two year plan, roughly put tiger in China, sent him over a handful of times. He was beloved there. There were, you know, we did events and things with him. There are people eight to 10 deep at golf courses to see him. And then we brought him back after what we thought was the right amount of time and introduced him back into the U S culture by signing Rory McIlroy. Hmm. And when we signed Rory McIlroy and combined him with Tiger, we did a whole campaign and it helped ease Tiger back into this market. Oh, that's fascinating. I, that's I crazy. No idea. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So how long was your tenure at Nike and were you always in the golf brand or did you pivot outside to a different department? Pivoted. So I was in golf for, I was there five total, four in golf. And then when Nike signed the NFL deal, Nike took over Reebok deal. I moved to football and baseball for about a year. Cool. And overall lessons learned. I, I, I get the tiger story, but what other takeaways, what other things did you learn while being at Nike? And then after that, where, where did you go? So yeah. that's, so the, yeah, the, the tiger thing was, was a moment, but what I learned is how to manage a business through crisis. Our Nike golf president, Cindy Davis, incredible. She's no longer there, but. The combination of Cindy and some of the other senior leaders we had, we knew that we had to keep Nike golf going and we didn't want to lose momentum. What happened when it hit the tabloids, a lot of the golf destinations didn't want anything to do with Tiger's product. So Dick's Sporting Goods had 350 retail doors. And their CEO and president at the time, Ed Stack, said, I don't want anything to do with Tiger. I want everything related to his brand out of our stores. And I want Nike Golf out of our stores. Wow. Well, if Nike Golf and Tiger Woods brand gets pulled out of 350 Dick stores, we're done overnight. There's, there's no way to recover from that. It's millions and millions and millions of dollars I'm into. Correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially every department like golf football, soccer, et cetera. They have their own balance sheet, right? Yes. They have their own org chart and everything. Yes. Okay. So Nike golf had to operate as a standalone, profitable functioning business. We couldn't rely on big Nike at the time. We either had to survive or sink. So we flew to Pittsburgh and sat down with the senior leadership at Dick sporting goods and said, we hear you now, but if you take tiger woods brand out today in Nike golf, when he starts winning again, and we're back where we know we'll be. You're going to be at the bottom of the list. We don't care who you are. Oof. It was a intense conversation. 
So we settled on taking our product out of certain, they have, they ranked their doors, ABC doors. We took it out of most C doors out of some B doors, but we stayed in the A doors. Surprisingly enough, tiger comes back 18 to 24 months later, he starts winning again. And the demand all over the country was, why can't I get more tiger woods apparel? Where is it? Come on, let's go. So it was interesting how when he was down, no one wanted a part of it. But when he was back, yeah, surprise, everybody. everyone wanted a piece. Like, I've always been with Tiger. Yes. I never left the guy. Where's his lids? He was winning. You know, we all know what happened at the Masters when he won. So there was all this energy around him winning again. And when that happens, the rush to retail and e-com for people to buy Tiger stuff is through the roof. So we got it back to that point. And then I had an opportunity to go to football. I went to football. But managing through that, Nike golf on the brink of shutting down and now it's dominating. I mean, it how, is how close was it to a shutdown? Very close. Like 11th hour close. If we would have been removed from all the Dick sporting goods doors, we would have been in trouble overnight. So what was the anticipation on your flight to Pittsburgh? Like how was it? How are the feelings with the team? Our president, Cindy Davis, calm. We're going to figure this out. We're Nike. We'll figure it out. I was scared to death. I thought I just moved my family to Portland. I'm in a, I don't have any family here. I've been here maybe a month, two months. If Nike golf goes South and I can't get on with another category, I'm going to be tucking my tail and going mm -hmm. back to Utah, but we pulled it off her. She's one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked with. What, what made her such a great leader? Calm, just calm, cool, collected, work through it. We've been here before. We'll be back in this position. There's going to always be challenges. She brought the right people with her. She didn't have to be the hero in the room. She let everybody have a piece. And then when it was time to close the deal or make a decision, she made the decision. That's amazing. That's a great story. Incredible leader. That's crazy. So now you leave Nike and you go where? Vivint. Vivint. Okay. So I, if it was my choice, Nike is the greatest experience in the world. If you were 35 and single, I can't imagine that I'd want to work anywhere else. You get access to every sporting event. You get to meet some of the most incredible business leaders in the world. It wasn't right for my family. Just the hustle, the bustle, how busy it was, everything. I became a face, face of life. I became a FaceTime dad. Mm. And I justified being away With because one day. yeah, one day it's work, right? right? So what happens is you grind all week at Nike and then you leave on the weekend to go to the sporting events. The, sure. the biggest sports moments in the world happen on the weekends. They yep. don't happen on Tuesdays. Yep. So you grind all week, you jump on a plane on Thursday or Friday, you fly to the masters, you fly to the final four, you fly to the super bowl. And then you come home late Sunday night, first thing, Monday morning, you don't go, you go back to the office. Sure. No one's keeping track that, Oh, you've been away. That's you, you grind. You grind. Yeah. Well, after five years of it, I now have a couple kids. I'm missing the first T-ball game. I'm missing dance recitals. I tried to justify it with FaceTime walking through New York saying, Hey, good luck. I was coming home after Super Bowl 48, New York, uh, Bronco Seahawks. And I wasn't, uh, physically sick. I didn't have a cold and a flu, but mentally I was so sick. I just, I didn't have anything left. And I got home in Portland. And I said to my wife, I'm going to say this out loud now because I probably won't say it 20 minutes from now. I got to leave Nike. Mm. It wasn't Nike's fault. It was my fault. I wanted to be there my entire career. I loved it too much. And if I didn't separate myself five years in, 15 years in, I was going to regret it. 
I wanted to be an engaged, present dad. And I knew if I stayed there with how much I loved it, that it was going to consume me and I had to get out. Wow. So, no, wow. That's that right there. That's a great story to learn. We have a lot of young entrepreneurs watching and I, I say this all, all the time, but success without fulfillment is life's ultimate failure. Yeah. So you can be super successful at Nike, Vivint, Callaway, whatever. But if the home isn't right, and if you're not right, and if you're not living what you truly want to live, which is really family, yeah. then none of it's worth it. It's just not. If if all you're chasing is the money, that's all that's there, right? If If all you want is fame and glory, like... All you'll have is money. And some, like they say, some people are so poor, all they have is money. Family's way more key, way more important. Yeah. You're so, here's, here's what, what I realized about myself. And I was extremely embarrassed when I came to the realization. I loved going to the barbecue in our Portland neighborhood. We're flying home to Utah to hang out with college buddies at a Utah game on the weekend. And wherever I was in the room, it didn't matter where someone worked. I had the coolest gig in the room. I did. And when somebody said, oh, my construction job, or I'm, I'm working at a, you know, some retail, whatever. And I would say, oh, I shot a commercial with Tiger last weekend. Felt really cool. But what it was doing was tying my personal identity to something that wasn't me. It was where I worked. It wasn't who I was. And when I stripped Nike away and moved back and ended up meeting you at Vivint, I had a really tough year or two because my identity was tied into Nike mm. and I no longer was going places and say, Oh yeah, you want to come up to the company store? Sure. I can get you a pass. You want to, you want to go with me to the pick the sporting event? I, I can get us tickets. It was a, it was a false representation of who I was and I had to separate myself from it so I could be Nate again, not Nike Nate. Wow. That's crazy. And Nike Nate was a, it was on a path I wasn't proud of. Wow. That's super mature like super brilliant that you were able to identify that at essentially a peak of your career, like in the peak of your career, like so much going for you and you made that decision. Yeah. That, it's nice of you to say the reality is I wish I could have been strong enough to figure out a better balance with it all because I wouldn't have left, but I, I was far enough in that I realized this is consuming. And if I don't step out, it's yeah. I mean, that could have been yeah. your balance or your harmony right there yeah. saying I have to opt out. I'm mature enough to know yeah. I need to opt out. That's all. That's brilliant. Okay, so how did you how do you end up at Vivint? How'd you like who was the lead in? Yeah, for so Jeff Lyman, okay, who was also at Nike, was at Nike. He was over the LeBron brand when I was over Golf and Tigers brand. Didn't know each other at Nike. It's bigger than most college campuses. How how big? How many people on campus? I would miss the estimate. At, at least eight to ten thousand. Okay, but maybe I mean it's buildings and buildings. Oh yeah, it's I've been bigger there. It's massive. It's huge. So we never crossed paths there, but we knew a bunch of the same people. And when I started to put out my fillers, I wasn't trying to leave Nike tomorrow, but I knew within six months I needed to. Sure. And if we were going to move, it was back home to Utah. So I started reaching out and multiple connections said, well, do you know Jeff Lyman? No. Got on a call with him within three or four days. I flew to Provo, met with him. He was, I believe, the CMO at Vivint at the time. He said, hey, I've got this... VP, SVP, leadership role in the marketing team. Do you want to come be a part of it? And he and I hit it off so well, polar opposites, but hit it off so well. I didn't even really need to know a lot about what Vivint was. I just knew if Vivint had somebody like that. And then I started to meet other people. I was like, 
This would be perfect for me. This would be a great landing spot to come back home. So we moved home. Now my kids are by family, cousins. They're staying over at grandparent. Everything they didn't have for the first 10 years of their life. And I look back and we've been back here nine years now. It is the best personal family decision I've ever made. Brilliant. Okay. So, at well, lessons learned at Vivint. Let's go there and then we'll go to your next landing spot. Vivint is not sports. And I was really good at sports. And it was a, it rocked my world when I got into a channel of business and a category that I knew nothing about. And I couldn't have an impact as fast as I thought I would. Extremely humbling. I mean, all of you are out with established territories and teams and crushing it. And I'm trying to figure out how to develop a message that softens the front door. I kept failing over and over again. Couldn't figure out the formula. And probably too late into the experience, I realized, well, it's about helping the reps be the best version of themselves and, and giving them the tools not going around the rep and making sure that the customer knows the story when the rep comes to the door. And I probably failed more in the first 18 months of that marketing leadership role at Vivint than any other role. Cause that category was, I was fresh out of water. I had no clue. <laughs> no so clue. 18 months it clicks. Yeah. And the click was, I don't need to go all the way to the end consumer. I need to go to this consumer that's an internal customer yeah. so that they have better tools to be able to affect. So I started going out with reps. Love it. I went to Fresno. I went to the East Coast. I, I spent more time on the road in a three-month stretch, 18 months in, than I had in the previous 18. And I went and walked the streets with reps. I knocked a bunch of doors. I saw how it worked. And then I realized, oh, and their iPads, they need content. And this is clunky. And... They're not explaining this. Maybe we can simplify this. Mm. And, and if we made the whole buying process simpler, and if the website said this instead of a bunch of marketing fluff, going door to door with the reps during that stretch where I went and did a bunch of it, if I would have done that the first three months, I would have been a lot better at that job. Yeah, what's interesting is just identifying really who your customer is, right? So we did a case study um, a while back on Google. Yeah. And the professor in the case study session is asking, well, who's Google's customer? You know, and the, the natural response is the end user, you know, yeah. the, per, the person on the search engine says, no, you guys are mistaken. Google's customer is their engineers. Mm-hmm. Because if Google can take care of the engineers, the engineers are going to be happy. They're going to write phenomenal code and they're going to really care about what they're building and writing. And they're going to produce a beautiful product out there. Yeah. So at Vimit, what you're saying is maybe it's not the end user. Maybe it's not the person on the other side of that door who we're knocking on, but it's the rep that's actually engaging with that customer. And if they have all the tools necessary to be able to create raving fans, they're going to in turn create a really beautiful customer for you. Yes. But you have to really truly identify who the customer is. So maybe a challenge for our viewers today is whatever business you're in, maybe ask yourself, what business am I in? What business am I really in? And maybe what business should I be in? Mm-hmm. And ask yourself, really, who's my customer? And it it may be who's using your product. It may it may not be. Yeah. But you have to figure that thing out. So that that's brilliant. So that's what you learned at Vivint. And after Vivint, where did you go? Where'd you land next? Utah Jazz. Okay, the Jazz. And the only reason I left Vivint, I I mean Vivint when I figured it out was a great setup. I had a great boss. I loved the the 
everything about it. And you let, what was your role when you left Vivint? Your final role? Uh, VP of marketing. VP of marketing. Yeah. Okay. Jazz called, hadn't made the playoffs in five years at that point. Fan interaction. Did, did the jazz call because of the ties that you had with Vivint working with the jazz? So they N- knew you Nike intimately. is this hub where if you're at Nike and people are connected to Nike, if you did anything good in that environment, your name's just kind of in the conversation. Of sports. Of sports. And because Nike, you were baseball, football, golf, but not basketball, but you still got the phone call. But I knew all the Nike basketball guys because they'd go to the Masters with us. And so... The Jazz were talking to Nike about, do they know anybody in Utah that's connected to sports? My name got brought up. I went met with the Jazz, hadn't made the playoffs. And they were saying, look, people now care more about University of Utah sports and BYU sports than the Jazz. That's a problem. That's a problem. I mean, the arena was half empty. It, It was a tough stretch. Okay. When, when was this? Like who was, who was a known player back then? It was Hayward and nobody. Hayward and nobody. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there were different players each season, but for the, for the couple of seasons I was there, Hayward was the leading player. It was pre Donovan and and Rudy. So I went because I thought, you know, this is, this is my home team. This is a team I grew up loving and I didn't love it as much anymore because the team wasn't winning. Sure. So I wanted to go be a part of, could we reestablish the jazz as the leading sports story in Utah? And what was the role that they wanted you to fulfill? SVP of marketing. SVP of marketing. Yeah. Okay. So I led the marketing, the branding, the, the culture and identity of the jazz note and, and the team, the Jersey look, and then all the game operations. So anything that happened within the game, the look of the court, the energy of the crowd, cheerleaders, jazz bearer. Wow. Management. So much that goes into it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you got that call from the jazz, was it like, man, this is the Utah jazz. Or were you like, Ugh, they're a losing team. They're losing franchise. It's an uphill battle. How'd you feel? It was more, it's, it's the Utah. It was my, it was my it's team. Like, I mean, I went school. to Alex and Todd told them to their face. And they're sure. like, how can you not go, go, go do it, man. Well, this, bro, this is what's crazy. Callaway golf. Pretty cool. Yeah. Nike. Pretty cool. Yeah. Vivid in Utah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Jazz. Okay. So tell me some of the lessons, some of the cool things about the jazz. What did you learn there? The jazz was really interesting because it felt like the players didn't even believe the jazz could win. They'd never say it. You could, def- you could feel, you it. could feel yeah. it. It was like, we're on a, we're in a losing stretch and we're a small market team and add that all up and it doesn't add up to much. Okay. But there was great people in the front office, Steve Starks, Don Sterling, obviously the Miller family. So they had all the right leadership pieces. The team was just missing some energy. And I felt like our responsibility as a marketing team was to put some energy back into the community. So we started kicking around concepts of what could we do that would make the energy around the team bigger than winning? Is that possible? Even when we're losing, can we be winning? started whiteboarding. We had this, this agency in with us and we started coming up with hashtags. We had a hundred of them up on the board and there was this one hashtag that said, take note. And we're like, man, that's got, that's got something you could lose and still take note of a winning moment with a, a, a moment in the game where a player dove out of the dove off the court and, and into the stands to say that that's a take note moment. We may have lost by four, but there were five take note moments in that game that if we keep adding up those moments, we could get some wins. Mm. 
Quinn Snyder, who I know is gone now, is one of the kindest, behind the scenes, one of the kindest, most thoughtful, engaging people I've ever met. He didn't treat me like I was on the corporate side of the jazz and he was on the player team side of the jazz. He welcomed me to the practice center whenever I wanted. So I called him, went over, sat down and said, we're thinking of this concept that could be bigger than winning. What do you think? And I told him about take note. We were, he was sitting on a couch. I was sitting on a chair in his office and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, we're doing it. Let's do it. But it has to come from the players. So I went to the practice, whole team's there. Rudy's now on the team. As I explained, take note, Rudy said, I'll, I'll post about it. And his, that was horrible French, but he said, I'll, I'll talk about it. Was that your French? That was horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really bad. He tweets something and puts at the end, take note, took off. Wow. We didn't have to even say that it was a marketing. Okay. So hold on. Obviously you whiteboarded it. Somebody came up with that idea. Quinn being a brilliant leader, he says, this can't come from you. Yeah, this can't it. come from the front office. But it's a vivid thing, right? Any it's, of you executives. Like take it to the reps. Take it to the team. And make it theirs. That way they yeah. own it. So I, I, I'm just curious. How, how, did, how did the Jazz own it? I, I, I get it. But that meeting, something happened where they're like, oh, we can get behind this thing. Like, talk about those intricacies. Relationships. Okay. So, so they trusted you. Quinn, they trusted Quinn. Yeah. Quinn treated me with, with respect and gave me a voice. And I was honored that he gave that to me and I didn't shy away from it. And he was so open and I went over, he couldn't have been more supportive. And when he said, I want it to be the teams, that's where it could have fallen apart. If the corporate side of the jazz and the team side of the jazz said, no, this is a, this is a marketing campaign. We'll do this. You follow along. You run the team. I'll run the market. But it was, it was so cool the way it came together that when we shared it with the players and it became theirs, then it became the fans. So, so, so hold on. Do you feel like in that meeting, the player said, we got this thing? Rudy did. So Rudy stood up, says, I got this thing. Yeah, I get it. Like, I, I'll tweet about it. He okay. tweeted about take note within 24 hours. We didn't even have a full campaign baked. Okay. I mean, we, we knew that we'd probably throw it up on a billboard. We knew that it would probably end up in a commercial, but we hadn't, it's not like we had some perfectly baked sure. thing. But when Rudy puts it out and fans start saying, take note and Eight years later, it's still the theme of the team. That's it cool. tells you that it was bigger than winning. It's now become wow, that's brilliant. It's like the anthem of the Jazz. Uh, I love now that. that that was not all me. I had a I had a ton of people on the team. We had an agency, a lot of really great thinkers, but we were able to narrow it down to yeah. that concept, and then we pitched the one concept we thought would work. And when they bought, it, it was gold. No, li- listen. So the de- Declaration of Independence, right? Why there's so many signatures on that document? No, yeah. so that's everybody's yeah if it was just one person if it's just thomas jefferson and that's it it doesn't have traction yeah but when everybody's a part of it and they own it together and it becomes their idea that's where beautiful things happen so that's a brilliant leadership move on y'all's part where you took it you created as a team everybody's collaborating like best idea wins you never bring an umbrella to a brainstorm you come up with the hashtag you take it to the proper authority so he doesn't feel like you're bypassing him he gives you the go, okay, and then you go to the team where all the magic happens. Yeah, team post that now it's the crowds too, and boom, brilliant marketing strategy. The the marketing team at some point actually tried to change it. I don't even remember what they changed it to. This is after I left. They they changed it to something like team together. I don't know what it was. Yeah, and the fans said no. no the fans wouldn't adopt it, and they went back to like do whatever you want, but we're gonna go take note. That's cool. That's when it becomes a communities. 
I think if we would have started it as a marketing campaign, the jazz marketing team saying, hi, everyone, take note. Would have Too forced. It's not authentic. It's not real. Would have never worked. I like that. I, dude, I remember when Take Note came out. I was like, dude, that's pretty brilliant. Yeah. And there were a couple people, and you know some of these people. I, I think one person said, oh, that's kind of wonky. I'm like, no, I think it's brilliant. It's like, Take Note. It's like, we coming. Yeah. We coming for you. Like, Take Note. Yeah. We don't have to win at everything, but we come and just watch. I think it's a brilliant play. So that's super cool. So that's that's the jazz, and then after jazz, where did we go? I go back to Vivint because we're going to go back to Vivint. We're talking about going public. So I'd had enough. And your, and your role at Vivint is now CMO. CMO. So Jeff had moved to product. I can't remember what okay. his title was, but CMO role was open. Went is, to is Jeff the one that called you? Hey, come back. Alex. Alex called you back. Alex called me and said, "Hey, we're at a point where we're ready to scale and do some big things." And I felt like you know what? I wasn't done round one, and now that there's, it, it's grown even bigger and it looks like we're going to take it some places. I want to Sorry, go back. what year is this? I wish I could tell you. I'm not good with. Okay. It's. How, how many years pre-IPO? Uh, maybe two. So 2017. Two, technically, okay. yeah. Total, I was at Vivin four or five years. Okay. But I wanted to go back because I felt like, man, I feel like I kind of failed round one. I know everybody. There's new players. There's an additional investment with Blackstone. Yeah, I want to go back. So went back, loved the run. SPAC happened, which we don't need to spend time on now. But I just got to a point where I felt like, okay, I've added the value that I can add here. I probably need to go try a new challenge. And so Qualtrics was about ready to IPO. And being a part of that Vivint leadership team that had prepped for an IPO and pitched the company a bunch of times. I felt like I had those rounds in there. So I went to Qualtrics and got to be a part of that executive team that helped prep and take it public. And was the role at Qualtrics in the marketing department as well? So Yeah. So I was, uh, over the marketing for the Americas. They, they had a CMO at the time. Great guy, but got to be, we had a, a, uh, take it to market team or a, an IPO team that I was on got to take it from start to finish all the way through to, to the actual day when we, well, we went on the market. So it's awesome. So two IPOs, the jazz to have some swagger. Yeah. Um, the rebirth of tiger probably, he was probably more famous on the comeback than he was before that incident. Right. I'm sure you, when he won the masters after the comeback, that was it. I've watched that. I don't know how many times, but, Every time I go back and watch that Sunday round, it's as if I've seen it for the first time. That's that cool. was incredible. That's like my wife watching the World Cup final for like Congratulations. 160 times. I'm sure. And every time she watches it with me, she still holds my hand tightly. I'm sure. Are we going to win this thing? Yeah, and cries yeah, and I'm shakes sure. and gets nervous as I'm if it's sure. the first time she's watching it. Yeah. Okay, so post Qualtrics now. So you take the IPO and now you are where? So I'm a Qualtrics. I'm good. We've gone public. It struggled a little bit out of the gate. I thought I'd be there for a stretch. I go to a Silicon Slopes summit. Sure. Somebody comes up to me, starts talking to me about Gab, and in the first 30 seconds, like, wait, what? It just made so much sense to me. I have four kids. We we've given tech to our kids too soon. If you don't mind, what are the ages of your kids at the time? Uh, at the time when I started at Gab, 18, 
13, uh, 10. You're in it. Yeah. I'm You're in it. it. Especially with the 10 and 13 yeah. year old. But our oldest, not to her fault, we just gave her a phone too soon and some things happened. And I just always knew there was a better way. And as Gab was being explained to me at this silicon thing, in 30 seconds, I was like, that, that is a winning idea. Because I'd now been, I, I was at Callaway when the two ball putter launched and I saw how that dominated a category. I was at Nike when a handful of things launched and I saw over and over again, Nike dominate a category. It was at the leading security, Vivint dominating it. And as soon as I heard about Gab, I thought that is a dominating category leader. The demand for that will be through the roof. So I didn't leave Qualtrics immediately to go to Gab. I started advising one night a week for the senior leadership team at Gab. I was helping with the billboards and just giving some thoughts on positioning. And that was during COVID late 2020, early 2021. I started talking to the leadership team at Gab saying, maybe I should come here full time. And then I ended up doing it June of 2021. And you came in as CMO. Yep. And now you currently serve as the chief executive officer of the yeah. company. And you're my boss. <laughs> <laughs> your boss. Um, how's that journey been for you? Just being CEO, a lot, lot of learning, like talk, yeah. talk to us about that. Because uh, you know how CEO, everything st- starts and stops with you. Yeah. yeah, it, it does. And then it doesn't because I have the best leadership team. I have people that are so committed to the mission. And they're really good at what they do. And so I've learned that if I trust them, set them up the right way, trust them, let them execute, that I don't have to be in the day-to-day as much as I initially thought I would Mm. because they're doing an incredible job. That's brilliant. So you've mentioned trust a few times. Um, I say this, but where there's high trust, there's fat, there's speed, right? So if you trust somebody that's sending you a DocuSign, you can go through that DocuSign rather quickly. Yep. If you don't have that high trust level, it may take you a week. Yeah. To go to you're combing it yeah, every you're line, combing through it, or you're hiring a third party attorney or whatever to put more eyeballs on it, etc. Yeah. But for me and in life, the the currency of business it's not money, it's trust. Um, and with my sales guys, I would tell them, hey, if people like you, they'll talk to you, like they'll entertain you. Yeah. But they're not going to say yes to you because unless they trust you, they won't transact with you. So trust is key. And then you also mentioned your team and that you don't have to necessarily be in the day-to-day. It's because they're in the day-to-day. You're in the day-to-day. But you have your stewardship, your duty of care, and they have theirs. Yeah. And true leaders don't hoard power. They don't care who's taking that. In fact, true leaders prefer that the accolades go elsewhere. That's a true leader where you're empowering others to become the best version that they can become. And you not just delegate, but you empower, like I said. And I've, I've witnessed it firsthand. You are phenomenal at empowering and creating teams where they feel like what they're doing, not feel, they know that what they're doing is making a massive difference. And you allow people to shine and bring their best every day. So I applaud you for that. And everybody listening. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like empowering is key. Do not hoard power. Empower your folks. Empower your people. And remember that the speed of business is faster than the speed of light, but you have to have trust in order for it to move forward. And currency is the trust. It's not money. Well, look, look at us two years ago when I took over this role, you and I had a a good to great relationship. We never had an issue. 
but we've never had to go through detailed trenches together. Either. Sure. And in the last two years without getting into details, I trust you implicitly. And it's not because of day-to-day contact we have. I don't have to talk to you every day or every, every month or, or every week. We talk at least monthly, but I have had some really challenging things in this role that no one would know about. And you've been there every single time I needed you to show up. Yeah. I mean, it's easy with a leader like you and a friend like you. Well, yeah, but and the, the, listen, the cause that, that Gab has, it's too great of a, a cause to, I know, you know what I mean? But there have also been people who haven't shown up sure, and haven't helped me carry the weight. Sure. And you have every time. So, um, trust for me is earned at the lowest point. Yep. Not the highest point. It's easy. Mm. It's easy mm. at the highest point. Everyone wants mm. to be a part of the highest point. And you know what the lows have been. Oh, yeah. And at the lowest point, when I need someone to show up, you were there. Oh. That's when you were in my trust. Beautiful. No, I appreciate that. Now, let's... That's beautiful. Um, let, let's talk a little bit more now about family. I know yeah. you're a massive family guy. What lessons have you learned in being a dad? And you have you have one of your kids that's um, doing a service mission. Yeah. Um, are they in a different country? Yeah. So she's, uh, in Manchester, England. She comes home in a month. England. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That was quick. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So I'm sure it's been tough to have, have her gone. I'm sure she's daddy's little pride and joy. Yeah. And then you have your other kids. How, how do you, how are you a CEO and so connected with the community and still able to be such a great dad? How, how, how do you view that? How do you, how do you harmonize all this? I lost my mom when I was nine to a car accident. And that for me was too much loss too soon. And I learned how precious life is. My biological dad quit on our family when he was five, walked out, didn't pay child support. So when he quit when he was five and then I lost my mom at nine, by the age of nine, I'd lost both biological parents. Okay, You said at f- who was five? You were five. I was five. Okay. So he, my quit biological f- dad quit, walked out. So when you were five, he's out. Gone. Um, I haven't seen him since I was five. Okay. My mom gets, she's on her own. We have next to nothing. She raises myself and my baby sister for three years by herself. She gets remarried. Mm. Her and my stepdad have my little brother. So I have a baby Mm -hmm. sister and a baby brother. Well, baby, she's 45. He's, he's 40. So I have two siblings. Um, My mom is happier than I've ever seen her. They're my mom and my stepdad are building a new house together and she gets in a car accident and passes away. So I got raised by, was she the only one in the car? Yeah. Mm. I got raised by my stepdad, my second dad, who's now my real dad of my own. I think heroes tossed around too casually. He's the only hero I have. I have a lot of people I look up to. I have a lot of mentors. He's your hero. Only one. So from those life experiences, both parents gone by the time I'm nine and then I'm raised by somebody I didn't even really know at the time who's now my greatest gift in life by the time I got to being a dad I thought all my trials were over like I'm sure I'll have some hard stuff kids are tough making money's tough but I lost my parents when I was by the time I was nine Mm. what, what else could happen And then my wife and I have our first kid, no issues. She's two at the time, Ella, our oldest. We go to deliver our second child, full-term birth, all nine months, delivery day. 
walk in and there's no heartbeat. So I buried my mom when I was nine. And then my wife went through a 18 to 20 hour delivery of a full term baby girl named Kate. I got to hold her when she came out. She just wasn't breathing. Chubby cheeks, 10 finger, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes. Perfect. But we lost her during, mm-hmm. during birth. So I had to fly back to, we were living in California at the time. I had to fly back to Utah and bury my second child next to my mom. The wake up call of all of that, of life doesn't deliver trials and challenges in moments. And then you move on and they don't happen. They just keep coming. And you've either got to be somebody who digs in and weathers them or falls apart during them. And after digging through losing my kid with my wife for 10 years, we almost got divorced a couple. I mean, it was, it was a tough stretch. And I'm at a point in life where I've decided to simplify a lot of the chaos and I have what I call non-negotiables. And those non-negotiables happen every Sunday night. I sit down with my family or I have individual conversations and I say to my kids and my wife, what's most important to you this week? I don't care what it is, whatever they give me. And they know I can't be at everything, but depending on what they give me, my son will say, being at this tryout's the most important thing. My daughter will say, skip the choir concert, but come to my play. My wife will say, I got a girl's night out. I need you to pick up carpool. Whatever their non-negotiables are become mine. And I don't ever miss those. Mm. I can't be to everything, but I won't miss a non-negotiable. Wow. I've even said to our board before, sure. Hey, can we move? I can't. My kid's got a, my son has a basketball game tomorrow at two 30 yep. at X junior. I'm not missing it. Yep. I'm not missing it. So I've, I've simplified trying to have this perfect work-life balance, which is impossible down to these non-negotiables. Mm. I lock them in on Sunday night and I won't miss them no matter what happens during the week okay. or cannot interrupt those. That's, that's incredible. That's those non-negotiables. When did you start that? It's been over the last 10 years, but I kept trying to fight this work-life thing and I always felt like I was failing. And when I said, I just got to pick the moments that really matter to them, not the ones that I think matter or the ones that I think will check off that I'm a great dad. My son has 10 things this week. I can't beat all 10, but if I make the top three, does that? Yeah. And I started seeing those add up and matter. And over the last five or six years, I've been doing it. And it is, it's been a game changer for me. Because I'm hitting a hundred percent on the non-negotiables. That's great. That's great. I won't miss it. Yeah. So I, I get this question asked all the time. It's how do you create a work-life balance? My response is there's no such thing. I don't believe in it. It doesn't exist. It's yep. it's rarer than a unicorn, rarer, yep. rarer than Bigfoot. So it's all about work-life harmony. You have to harmonize with with time. You have to harmonize with yep. your non-negotiables. Um, you can't there. Balance suggests equilibrium and it just doesn't exist in life. It's just a false pretense. So that's a, that's a beautiful lesson. So your non-negotiables, um, they give you lists then you say, I will be there for this and hell or high water. You're there. Put them into the calendar, ask anybody at Gab and I let them do the same thing. If I tell my co-pilot Quinn or our board or whoever it may be Tuesday, two to four 30, I'm at this thing with my yeah, kid. Yeah, that's great. I'm not, it's I'm not. I'm not changing it. It doesn't matter what it, we can be a code red issue at work. I'll deal with it right after I'm, I'm not missing this. That's good. So it allows me to show up, be fully present. I've already told everybody that matters that I'm out for two hours. This is what I'm doing. And then I can go and pour into whatever that is. And then as soon as I'm walking out of whatever that non-negotiable is, the stress pours back on and I'm back in it. 
but I'm not missing what matters most to my kids. And, and do you feel like your team at Gab, have you been able to help them with this work-life harmony as well and say, hey, we're here to protect kids. We're here to protect them from the predators that are out there. Family is key. Family's number one. Yeah. Make sure that you make your family priority. Do you feel like that culture permeates throughout your organization as well through your leadership? I hope. I tell them all the time. I, I often have to have the conversation of, oh, wait a minute, doesn't your, I thought you told me that your kid, yeah, but I, you got to go. Because I've noticed um, when you're talking with the team, I've said, no, you need to go to this. Hey, make sure you take some time off. Hey, make sure that you're with your kids. Like I've seen it yeah. from afar. So I was just curious if you had some systematic approach to make sure that they're making sure that those priorities still still stay as the priority. I use the one-on-ones. I, I religiously try to make sure those happen weekly. And in the one-on-ones, even if it's 90% work, I take 10 and say, what's, what's going on with the family? And inevitably somebody will say, oh, my daughter has, you know, just started playing junior high basketball or my, my kids got a a science fair and I'll say, have you blocked off the time to go do that? No, we're busy. You, you need to go. How many bosses or CEOs do that? Probably not very many. I'm not missing mine. So you I can't, you, but, but you I know what I'm saying? Expect, like yeah. the, just the, the vision that you have and the leadership capabilities that you have to be able to have those conversations. Because again, you know, the, these folks, they're your customers, right? Yeah. Like we talked about previously. And if you can take care of your customers, they're going to take care of the end consumer. They're going to take care of the business. Yeah. But if their harmony isn't right with their home front, they're not going to be very good in the C-suite. Yeah, exactly. So I love that. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't want anybody, if we're going to have a safe tech company for kids and family, it seems a bit backward to not allow people to go to the moments that matter with their kids. doesn't make any sense. makes no sense. So I tell them, you can't beat everything. But you pick the moments that matter to your your kids or you, and then don't don't miss them. And Gabby, what happens Gabby is Gabby. when they come back, since they're able to fill that tank, they come back and they crush it. Yeah, right. Because those defining moments in life, they're present for them. I think that's that's brilliant. Let's let's end the show with with the takeaway. We talk about live life by design. So in the whole person paradigm, whether it be spiritual, physical, social, intellectual, what what are what's a takeaway that you can leave us with as we sign off today? People first, always. I'm trying to live my life in a people first with my family in a people first at work. And every time I have put people first, I end up being a part of a winning mm. thing every time when I don't do that. And I lose sight of how important people are in every aspect of life. Something goes south. So I people first and whatever that means to you. And, and it's meant a lot of things to me prioritizing the goodness and the mental health and the well-being of people always creates wins. Beautiful. Yeah. People are assets. Yeah. Things are really not things are tools of production, but people are true assets. So yeah. appreciate your leadership. Appreciate you being here on the show today. Thanks, Thanks for everything you do. You're one of my favorite human beings ever. So Thanks, much love to you, much Thanks success too. to you and your family. Thank you. Thanks for being on today. Thanks, much love. Thank